Discussing the Tyree Nichols case, which is actively going on in Memphis, Tennessee. Just to give anyone who's not aware of the case that's going on right now, give you a brief rundown. Uh, so on January 7th, 2023, at approximately 8.30 p.m., Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black male, uh, was pulled over allegedly for reckless driving. Uh, according to the body cam footage that was recorded at the initial stop, he was pulled from the vehicle, pepper sprayed, and a taser was deployed when he fled on foot. Uh, there's additional raw footage that was released by the Memphis Police Department on their Vimeo page. Uh, the second one is a poll camera that the city had, uh, and it showed where the police officers had caught up to uh, Mr. Nichols and... Uh, it caught up and it showed them uh, kneeing the suspect uh, several times, attempting to detain him. Um, he does appear to be sitting up several times, and while doing so, an officer appeared to kick him in the face twice, with two other officers still attempting to detain him. Op an officer deployed his baton, uh, with three other officers standing by. The officer with the baton struck him several times in the back. They stood him up. The officer struck him again with a closed fist three or four times to the face. Um, then he was back on the ground. Two additional officers arrived. There was more kicking on the ground and while he was detained in handcuffs. And the officers uh, finally dispersed, and they uh, dragged him over, uh, leaned him up against a patrol vehicle. The EMTs arrived, and after a time began treatment on him, and they took him off on a stretcher. Uh, the officers were, uh, according to the body cam footage, uh, the officers were consistently ordering him to give him his hands. Uh, and, he, um, and, yeah, that's kind of the rundown. Um, like I said, all this stuff is available on the Memphis Police Department, uh, the city of Memphis, their Vimeo page. Uh, if you're interested in, in tracking that down, we'll provide the link just so anyone listening can get a better understanding for for themselves exactly what we're talking about. But today, uh, you know, we're, we're actually approaching a local election here. Uh, I've got two community leaders. Uh, we have uh, Jeremy Taylor and Sergeant Peter DeYoung. Um, so you guys want to give a, a brief introduction about yourself? Uh, go ahead, Peter. Sure, yeah, Peter DeYoung. I'm a sergeant with the Evansville Police Department. Uh, I've been a police officer for 16 years. Uh, the first four years were with the Valparaiso, Indiana Police Department. And during my 12 years here in Evansville, I worked the first four in patrol and then was a violent crime detective uh, where we handled you know, murders, shootings, stabbings, um, various violent crimes, burglaries. Uh, I was lead on four murder uh, investigations and then assisted on a lot of others. And then the last four years, I've been a supervisor in violent crime, so I uh, kind of took a different perspective on approaching those scenes, and I was more in charge of coordinating things and supporting the detectives that were working the cases. Uh, Jeremy, what about you? My name is Jeremy Taylor. Um, I've been in ministry now since uh, 2011 as far as being called to pastor. Um, 
lived in Indianapolis for 15 years, did a lot of community work in that area, moved back to Evansville in 2015, I hit the ground running, doing a lot of community work, and wow, Siri is so sensitive. Um, started doing a lot of community work here in Evansville. Um, so I've been a lot of vigils where um, there's been violence and murders here in Evansville. Um, been a lot of bedsides with parents. Uh, we had to say goodbye to young loved ones. And uh, Evansville has just been a community that I've um, really been interested in seeing a lot of change in, especially on the south side where I grew up at. Um, and so uh, starting a ministry here called Level Up. Church, or it's going to be on the First Avenue side of town, kind of like Middle Evansville, downtown entryway of Evansville um, to the west side. So that's a little bit about me. I don't really like to talk a lot. About <laughs> uh, and you, you uh, currently sit on uh, a local commission. Yes, um, I'm on the commission for the social status for the advancement of African American males. Okay, great. So and I'd like to have. We both went to high school here. I went to Bossy, and Jeremy went to North, and uh, I think we graduated. Ninety-eight. Ninety-nine. Or ninety-nine. Oh, same as me. All right, we graduated. Both have long ties to the community here, yeah. so we <laughs> have some investment. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and, uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, why we're discussing is, you know, unfortunately, Jeremy Taylor, or uh, Tyree Nichols, he ended up uh, dying three days on January 10th. Uh, so so the real question is here, you know, as we, as we approach our local election, what uh, – you know, if this were to uh, situation or scenario like this were to fall upon our community leaders, what would we do? Uh, how would we react? Um, what's current regulations in in the city, and uh, think things of that nature? Because a lot of difficult conversations like this don't aren't had, and uh, I, th- I think that's severely lacking, uh, particularly with uh, you know. And there's a long long standing mistrust for some very obvious reasons between the black community and police uh, law enforcement officers. Uh, and ideally, the, the more we're able to talk about this, you know, as a community, uh, then ideally we'll get somewhere uh, instead of just letting things fester up. So uh, so did you, did you guys both have the opportunity to review some of the footage, body camera, anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. I was kind of monitoring when, when it first happened earlier this year, just – you know, wondering how it's going to, if it's going to be a replay of some of the other things that have happened in George Floyd or the issues in Ferguson, you know, just kind of um, while those incidents are all several hours from here, it did did kind of have some impact on Evansville with some protests and some encounters with the police. So I, I was definitely monitoring, especially when they said they were going to release video. You know, how is that going to impact us here? Yeah, I had opportunity to look at um, some of the footage last night do some reading and some other research um and it's it's one of those conversations that when something like that happens in the african-american community it's a conversation that every household is having so uh, that's been going on ever since it originally happened especially with the younger uh, individuals who are around that age range so it's been something that's been closely monitored but this was the first time i got to see the actual footage and see the body cam footage and see those different angles yeah. So I yeah, and when you know we speak about the you know the the first thing that kind of comes to mind is the civil rights movement of 1964. You know, and that's only been 59 years ago. Which, all things considered, you know, just from recorded history of of what we know in terms of humanity, you know, that's a drop in the bucket. So we're still kind of in the 
you know, infancy and kind of teenage years of, uh, of getting these things up to date. Uh, so, uh, Jeremy, what do you think the, where do you think the current, uh, we currently stand in terms of the police and the African, African American community from your perspective? I think that there's a lot of headway being made. Um, I think that um, there's an attempt to build trust. But like you said, it takes a lot of time, especially when you have situations like these that rise, and then it's almost like a um, trigger to the various incidents that maybe someone has experienced in their life. Um, but I, I feel like we're kind of turning the corner on things because the uh, police presence here in Evansville, um, to my understanding, uh, appears to be pretty positive. And I know that there's a lot of talk about how they're trying to engage with community and what that looks like. Um, so I think I think things are going in a, in a better way. We haven't had anything like what happened to Tyree Nichols happen here in Evansville. So that's a huge sigh of relief. Um, so, I, I, you know, I feel like everything is still pretty even uh, tilt, but there's still a lot of progress that could be made. Yeah, but I think, you know, just when you say that, from my perspective, especially as a supervisor, is when that – when could that happen? When could something like that happen? Even if it is, let's say the officer is completely right in it, and we don't have body cam video, or you know, it's a it's a tragedy. Even when the when the police are justifiably using force, you still have someone that's either severely hurt or killed. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad that things are going well, but it's also uh, I always feel a sense of urgency to try and how do we prevent something like this from happening before we even talk about what what would we do here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because that the video is really hard to watch, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I am thankful that it seems like the Memphis police did a pretty good job handling the aftermath, and um, the you know five officers were charged with second degree manslaughter, or uh, they call it homic- second degree homicide, or down there I think we would call it manslaughter here in Indiana, um, and a lot of people were held accountable, mm-hmm. uh, so it's hard to think through that but but first yeah what what's everything that we can do before something like that happens to prevent you know um so yeah what uh and just kind of expound on that a little bit uh so what peter uh, and full disclosure uh peter is my brother but i can assure everybody that won't uh <laughs> lower my <laughs> influence of giving them some some hard knock questions things like that so just want to put that out there but what uh, so in terms of the uh, of police dealing with the community and you know that can it, it doesn't specifically even have to uh, specifically involve the African American community here. Uh, so what are the what are some of the current challenges that the police department are are facing when interacting with the community? Absolutely, I think it's you know there are several things. Um, you know, number one is just an overall movement of youth and law enforcement, and that comes from a few different uh, factors. I think, number one, just hiring cycles. Maybe 20 to 30 years ago is when we really started to add a lot of police forces all over. So we just have a lot of people eligible for retirement. Um, And then you factor in uh, a a climate kind of nationwide where some people are being outspoken against the police and people who started 20, 30 years ago aren't as comfortable with that. The policing they started out with was People listened to the police and did what they said and weren't challenged as much as they are now, I believe. 
Yeah, and, and I think you know, as you you get a lot of the the older generations that retire, I mean, you you lose a lot of intel and information from officers who have worked cases and things like that. So now, obviously, you you pick up a more uh, ideally diverse police force and things of that nature. Uh, and additionally, people who are you know more educated and more understanding, who grew up in a, uh, a different environment, a different uh, climate. But yeah, certainly, uh, yeah, there, there's pros and cons to, to both ways. Right, and and just that reduction in in manpower, trying to hire new officers. The, office, the officers we do have are are just stuck in the cars so much; they're not able to get out and have a conversation with people as often as they need to where they're not under stress, they're not handling someone's problem. It's just, hey, let's stop, and there's some people on the porch, let's just go talk to them, which I feel like I had a lot of opportunity to do early in my career, and I always enjoyed that, or even just talking at the gas station with someone that came in while I was stopping for a drink. So the the crunch on manpower, increased demand for calls. People are calling the police for any and everything, which we're always available, so we can help in a lot of situations, uh, but the challenges, then we're pulled in a lot of directions, different directions, and don't have those opportunities to really build those those community relationships that would really uh, solidify things a lot better. Because we're just the sum of all of each officer's interactions with the public. Okay. And the more positive ones we can have, the better imprint and better uh, perception that people will have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Jeremy, when you see... Uh when you see incidents like this that, that happened down in Memphis, you know, what, what initially goes through your head? Well, if I, if I start with um, just on the outside looking in, there's a – your heart breaks, um, especially being an African-American male. Um, and then you begin to think back moments that you've had encounters with the police. Um, you know, times when I was pulled out of vehicle and – made to sit in the rain and, you know, a police officer just goes and sit in his car while I'm just sitting in the rain. I'm 17, uh, being pulled over by the same officer every night, same time after I get off of basketball practice. So those things begin to just play in your mind again. And, and so then you begin to think, has anything really changed? Um, you begin to wonder about your younger cousins or the young man as a teacher uh, taught seven years Evansville at Glenwood Leadership Academy. So you begin to wonder about your students who are around that age range and, um, you know, how are they handling that? Uh, I was fortunate that my father was very active in my life. And so because of that, um, he, you know, talked to me about how to deal with being put over and just be respectful and all those different things, that, you know, what they call the talk, um, you know, even hearing his experiences. So all that uh, just opens a wound, if you will, and it's one of those things you really can't ever totally heal from because you're seeing it all over again. Um, and, and for me, it, it made my mind go back to um, 91, even with Rodney King, and how that incident was, was caught on camera. And, you know, that was probably the first time that we saw it on a national level where they were just uh, you know, beating someone with no purpose, and that's exactly what's going on in this footage. And so um, – it's, tr- it's troubling. Uh, it kind of breaks your heart as you're listening and as you're seeing. And, um, you know, even when George Floyd uh, was crying out to his mother, all those different things, just they just stay etched in your mind. And, and so um, it's very hard 
to see. And then for me, I like to, I try to attempt to put myself in the position of the, the people that are there. Um, and that makes it just more uh, disheartening. Uh, five African-American men that we know of beating on a young African-American young man. Uh, well, you would think, you know, you would have a different conversation. I don't know how, because you're chasing someone, you can get so angry. I really don't know what caused um, all that anger and frustration. Um, I, I know, you know Tyree sounded very, very scared. Um, I can only imagine being that young, being yanked out of a vehicle. And first thing you're saying is, I, what did I do? I haven't done anything, which, you know, you don't know. I, I wasn't there. I don't know what he did or what he uh, what he did do and what he didn't do. But um, it really just, if you're not careful, it can make you angry uh, with law enforcement. It can make you angry with society. But I think, you know, when you have a certain gauge, uh, you can remove yourself and say, okay, um, what can be done? I think you find yourself in circles like these where you're having these type of conversations. Yeah, well, and you you had mentioned the talk. Uh, I'll use air, you know, air quotes around the talk. Uh, do, you, do you want to explain what that is to a lot of people who don't understand that? Well, that's a conversation that every African-American household has. Fortunate to have a father, he's probably going to sit you down and talk to you about it. If you if it's just your mother, uh, it's going to be a little bit different. Moms have a way of being more concerned with you making it home and not wanting you to go outside. My grand grand calls me still to this day. If there's a shot or if something happens, she'll call me and say, "Are you okay?" Um, and I'm at home and I'm 43, <laughs> but you know so. Yeah, that mother, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for mothers, I think there's a different perspective because a lot of women are able to get out of tickets and different things just because whatever. I, I know it happens all the time, but for men, um, having a conversation with the father is totally different. Where you go, get in the car, he shows you how to have your hands on the steering wheel, and then he goes through. You know, when they approach the vehicle, you keep your hands up where they can be seen. Then when they ask you down the window you do it and you do it slowly and you almost repeat back I'm going to now roll my window down and, and then when they ask for your license or registration I'm reaching for my glove box just let them know I don't have if you don't have anything I don't have a gun I have no firearms I have nothing that's going to put you in any danger and I'm complying and so you know at 10 or 11 you're having this conversation with your father you don't even have a license yet mm -hmm. um, so then, you know, they're telling you even how to conduct yourself on your bicycles or when you're walking around. Um, even initially say hello to a police officer just to show you're not a threat. So um, it, it, the conversation is one that, you know, uh, began to be titled as the talk because it's a talk that every um, African-American has to have uh, that's correlated with the police. But that has nothing to do with when you see flashing red lights behind you. You obviously you just get nervous mm -hmm. naturally because you've had the talk. So there's this buildup of um, things could go uh, wrong in the blink of an eye. Um, and what control do you have over it if the officer may be upset and it didn't have anything to do with you? And so it's one of those things that um, that talk is one that I think everybody um, has. And then you obviously go and talk with your friends about it. See, you know, I, I think I, I, re I did receive a similar conversation, but I think it was from a from having a father who was a police officer who was like, hey, here's how you talk to the police. But it's not too far of a stretch of the imagination that 
uh, many individuals in the white community have not received anything like that if, if they weren't in a, a similar situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did you, have you found just in, in interactions with police or anything like that, have you, uh, you know, what parts of, of, of that situation have you found to be true? Have you found anything to be false or about any of that? There is a level of truth. Um, I remember I was at a bank in Indianapolis, and uh, I was going to make a deposit. I had all this change. <laughs> I was, you know, keep your quarters and all that stuff for a long time. You that change them out. The <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on my way to the bank, and, and it was at Kroger's, and the bank used to open at 8.30. And so I was going in at 8.30 because I had a meeting at the church at, like, 9.15. Well, they changed their hours. I didn't know it to 9 o'clock. So I'm, you know, walking around, looking at magazines, and, um, lady comes outside and then she, well, comes outside the back door and then she goes back in and, um, I, I don't even know what's going on. I'm just waiting. Next thing I know is 25 police officers. Um, and I'm seeing, you know, one guy coming in the side emergency door by the bank and he's got his hand on his pistol. And, and before I know it, they're telling me lift my hands. And I'm like, I can't, I can't lift my hand. I'm going to try. <laughs> drop all this change I have. I mean, you know, I have it in my jacket because I don't want to get robbed, you know. So right. I'm like, I can lift this one, but I can't lift this one or I'm going to break this glass that I have. And um, it, the officer got extremely upset. And I'm dressed professionally. I'm in on my way to a church meeting, so I'm dressed nice. It's early in the morning. I'm thinking, who was dumb enough to rob a Kroger's with <laughs> a million cameras? Like, I yeah. mean, it's a grocery store. How do I even get out, you know? Um, and, and then uh, a, a more seasoned officer came in, and he calmed down the younger officer, and he said, you know, come talk with me. And he just explained the situation. He apologized, told me that the lady said, I fit the description, and, you know, this guy's like 6'3", I'm 5'9", he's dark-skinned, <laughs> I'm caramel. You know, I, I don't yeah. have a beard at this time. And I'm like, I don't look anything like <laughs> this, you know. And so um, we have experiences like that, you know, it, it – it does something to you, you know, because you walk away. And this lady literally was the individual who uh, took down my information when I opened up the account. And my daughter was with me, and she gave her crayon. So yeah. now it was kind of like, how could you do this when I was just here like a month ago opening up this account? I don't even want to bank here anymore. Yeah, it's like, give me my money back. I'm you taking know? this change with me, too. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah I, I didn't I, mean, I didn't get to cash that change that day. <laughs> I'm taking this with. Yeah. Well, that kind of highlights maybe some of the, you know, it's not all the police. You know, yeah. obviously traffic stops are one thing, but when we're getting 911 calls and we say someone is here doing this, and when we get called 911 and they think it's a robbery and then they throw that word out and you hit, kind of hit on it with the experienced officer recognizing what was going on. And I think that's maybe kind of what I hinted to earlier about right now being so young, uh, it, it is a little scary that we have, have a lot less experience than mm-hmm. we have in the past. Um, but, you know, as a, as a veteran officer, I remember showing up on scenes doing the same thing. Like, oh, we can, you know, let's ship this thing down. Let's, you know. It's not what it initially seemed to be, and, and here's why, and recognizing that. and um, you know, But I think that our youth is a big opportunity in law enforcement as well to try and shift the way we've done things in the past. But um, it's, uh, it definitely sounds like a scary experience. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you, and that's just one of a couple that you have. And so um, 
you know, you, you go back and you talk to your father or your grandfather and hearing their stories of what they went through, um, you know, because like you touched on, civil rights wasn't that. Yeah. We got, that we got a lot of people ago. still alive who live through some yeah. insanity. Uh, yeah. You read through a lot of books and you see a lot of stuff. Uh, that previously happened, it's mm-hmm. it's it's shocking. So yeah, yeah, used to, it's a little different from what's shocking now. But uh, I, I think I, I think that also speaks to to how much progress we have made mm-hmm. since then. Uh, to now, Peter, just to just kind of uh, go back to what Jeremy was saying too. So from you know him and his experience with being at the Kroger, you know, uh, just in terms, you know. Would it be easy to say that, you know, you felt kind of profiled? Uh, it's like, hey, there's a black guy here with, uh, you know, we're for somebody 6'3", stuff like that. So mm-hmm. on on do do police departments use profiling? Can you can you explain, get into that, and what, what the good, the bad from that can be? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is, um, and what we try and teach young officers is, articulate the information that you have. So, you know, most crimes are solved by information from the victim and from witnesses, um, which is a very flawed source of information, (laughs) unfortunately. Um, It's probably one of the worst places you can get information, but sometimes it's the only thing we have. So if we have a robbery at a gas station, the first thing, you know, we're trying to get everybody in the area and we're talking to the sus, you know, to the victim who, who just maybe had a weapon pulled on her, is very upset, and what's the description? Okay. You know, whatever that, that witness or victim is telling us is what we're putting out on the air in this kind of dynamic situation. So we can set up a perimeter, try and get a track because the goal is get somebody in custody and, uh, you know, that can be flawed, but you know, if, if the witness or victim says that we're looking for someone with a blue shirt, we're probably stopping every single person with a blue shirt that we see in the next 20 minutes, whether they perfectly match the description or not. Uh, we had it come up before, I can think of one case, it was a robbery, and they said, okay, it was a white Saturn. Well, it, I saw a silver Saturn, so I'm going to stop it because I know witnesses are not the best source of information, and they can miss stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, sometimes that leads to us stopping people that aren't the offender. And I think that really puts the burden on the police then to, like uh, Jeremy said, talk, talk it out, explain, be transparent, apologize. I mean, um, really have to see it from that person's perspective and that you know it was a big disruption now uh, we had a, a murder case a few years back that we stopped a car that it, it, we had an exact make and model of the suspect's car and this vehicle matched that description perfectly so we did what's called a felony stop we, we were checking for a murder suspect and he wasn't in the vehicle and uh, i know that was very upsetting and there was some stuff that came out on social media and um, I don't know everything that how it was handled from a law enforcement perspective after that traffic stop, but um, you know when you take the time to really explain it, I think everybody would be happy to have someone who committed a murder off the streets. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate that we sort of you know put a put a pretty traumatic thing in your day, um, mm-hmm. but it's also kind of part of how it goes sometimes. So I, I think that's an area where law enforcement really can do a lot better is is communicating with people after those situations, I, I think most people would are going to understand mm-hmm. why we did what we did, but we have to give them the information so they can understand it. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, you know, since you had mentioned the, uh, like, media, whether it be social media or news broadcasting, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, 
and the certain amount of influence that you know local local news, national news, uh, social media they can have. Um, so and inevitably, you know, whoever's the broadcasting company, everybody's looking for eyeballs, whether that be Facebook or whatever. Because if you got eyeballs on a station or eyeballs on a screen somewhere, that's just where your advertising dollars come. You know, that's where your advertising dollars come from. So how in 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 situations, you know, like like what you had mentioned, when stuff comes out on social media, how how can that affect public perception? Absolutely. I mean, it's a lot of times people are just locked on to the first story that they hear, and we saw that happen. We see that happen in national stories all the time. That the first narrative that gets put out there is the one that kind of gets locked onto. So it becomes a pretty big uh, responsibility what is put out there, um, and I think know this is the area where those relationships if we can just establish and and continue to build those those relationships become key because then we have the opportunity to really reach out to people and put you know our response to it out there Um, but yeah it's you know everyone it's kind of interesting I think how social media has impacted the perceptions of Evansville because everyone will say, oh, Evansville's so, gotten so bad lately. And I don't know, I grew up with an officer in the house, so I feel like I've always heard about it. And to me, it always feels like it's about the same as it always been. There's always been shootings and shots fired. Uh, but with social media now, we hear about all of them all the time. It's amplified. Absolutely. <laughs> Evansville mm-hmm. Watch uh, does a great service to society. A lot of people get their news from that, which it's a pretty good primary source of news. But you just hear a lot of things that never even got put mm-hmm. out there before. So I think I think that's one of the big challenges is just how much information is shared quickly. I mean, every person with a phone is a news reporter, basically, and they have you know hundreds, if not thousands, of you know viewers on their on their friends list. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, and and I think an interesting point. So I remember uh, when the National news really picked up on the uh, George Floyd case, uh, and so and then after you know the protests and everything that were going on like like that, and they were significant and national wide. Uh, but I, after you know after that had seemed to calm down a little bit, and then I saw this from from my perspective, I thought this looked worse um, just from what was being what was exposed, what was captured on film. So I was like, I was like, oh man, I was like, I was like, okay, was like, well, we're probably gonna have a round two, but for whatever reason, like there was, there was obviously protests. I know, especially in Memphis, uh, but uh, but I, I just didn't see the the same amount of uh, gumption, and I don't know if that's because Memphis had uh, all black officers involved and less black suspect, uh, and. Uh, the George Floyd case had a you know white officer directly involved and a black suspect, so uh, it was just kind of a uh, interesting, uh, interesting thought. I was like, it did, it just didn't seem to get the same traction mm-hmm. as uh, the, the the George Floyd case did. Mm-hmm. Do you, Jeremy, do you think that the races have a, something to do with that, or yes, just um, uh, yeah, or? it's it's got a <clears throat> large. It has a major impact on the response. I mean, you know, um, you know, because when you see it from a white officer, you drum up all of the uh, you can drum up the racism card. You know, it's you know, 
whatever is racially motivated, you can go down that path. But when you see black men do it, I mean, what what do you say as a as African American community as far as saying Black Lives Matter? You can't say Black Lives Matter to black people that were beating a black person. It's like, well, he should know the Black Lives Matter. <laughs> so you know, what is your response going to be when you see that? How do you go out and protest against that? And again, unfortunately, what what you would see is, oh, wow, they rushed to judge these African-American officers, but we never see white officers get the, you know, so then they, there's still a way that you can wiggle in there and, and say, you know, yeah, it was wrong. They prosecuted them and they gave them charges, but still not getting the justice that we want on the other side. So I think that that gives room for silence uh, just because you're looking at African-American men, um, you know, uh, that are the attackers. And so, um, and, and, and there's a level in the homes of African-American community, especially when we grew up, you almost protected the person that was doing wrong uh, because of how bad things were. And, that, you know, it's almost, I remember growing up and it was almost one of those things of, well, they don't, they don't know. They've always had it rough. Um, you know, you could have an abusive great-grandfather or grandfather who just um, was angry and might have even been beating your grandmother and, and it was like, well, he deals with so much in society because he grew up during slavery and mm-hmm. civil rights movement. He's seen so much and he just had too much to drink and now he's home angry and just he'll calm down. But they didn't want to lose another African-American male to the system mm. and he was providing and it was a time when the male was the main one that provided. And so what was grandmother or what was auntie, what was mom going to do if the man's removed? And, and, and there's a level of um, even spirituality where the scripture talks about if you can bind up the strong man then you can supplant the whole household so you had preachers that were even preaching that same message so women didn't know how to break away from um you know very traumatic relationships and and you see it even still play out today where a female may be beat by her husband and she doesn't uh, she'll call but then she'll drop the charges they're back in the household and it's just a revolving door it's a cycle and please like what's the point even showing up they're just gonna be back together so there is this revolving door of that, and, and there's a lot of um, history associated with why there's a level of silence when something happens like that, when it's black on black. Um, and, and even that term, black on black crime, was like, man, everything is, um, I think you made mention of how media and, and the first storyline that's put out there and the effect that it has, um, even the term black on black crime was like, well, we're next to each other, so I guess I will be fighting with a black person next to me. <laughs> we got into right. it. You know, so we're going to do black on white when I move to the suburbs. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like how do we have different terms for different stuff? But it's it's the media that puts it out there. Um, you have hip-hop music and different artists who relay some of the messages and things that are going on in their communities, and it just takes off. And um, every kid wants to be a rapper, so they got to image. So it's, it's really a lot that's... Um, involved in the whole process Mm -hmm. um and so i think that's another reason why there was a lot of just silence whenever that kind of happened let alone the fact that oh my goodness is happening again like we didn't get a break from the last one Mm -hmm. i don't even have the strength to go out here and do and so you almost envy you know people like martin luther king and and malcolm x and those individuals that always showed up when there was this situation even the black panther party P. newton and those guys and um, you envy them because they had the wherewithal and the strength to keep uh, fighting and showing up. Whereas now we don't really have activists like that. They mm-hmm. would just speak truth to power, period. Right. It has nothing to do with race, just truth to power, period. So, so would you think that, you know, 
would you think that that would be potentially a portion of the puzzle of why uh, you don't get a lot of cooperation between, you know, African-American community and the police officers because they're just like, nope, this is just what we heard. And, uh, you know, just like, well, obviously there's a trust thing there too. Yeah, there's a trust thing, but also um, when there's a decision made within a community that we don't really want the police coming because they don't show up fast enough. Um, so we might as well put matters in our own hands. And, and then you have um, different people that are respected within that community context that you can kind of go to and have the conversation. They deal with it. It kind of removes the need for the police to come because we've been waiting and you didn't show up. Yeah. Um, I've ha- I mean, I've had that happen. My car got broke in and, you know, <laughs> I could have ran off after the guy. <laughs> You know, so now I'm just waiting around. I'm, I'm going to do the right thing. Like, I'm going to tell the police I got a description. He shows up and he just said, "Here's my." I'm like, "You're giving me a business card. You're not even." It's like he's going to drive. Yeah, like uh, he's. You could uh, probably still catch him. Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, this is the number you call." I'm thinking, I should have got my car, just ran the dude down and got out and beat him up. You know, for, yeah. <laughs> I'd have had some form of satisfaction. Yeah, no doubt. If, and so when you have situations like that. And then you have conversations, and other people experience the same thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anything in my car, so I wasn't that angry, but still, it happened. Yeah. Um, and so, when you have those situations happen, and you have those conversations, and everybody's having it, you're like, "Well, what do we need the police for?" Yeah. You know, let alone when something happens, even when you consider the 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 uh, Tyree Nichols case and how um, he's he's there, and you hear dispatch say, "Are you going to bring him to us, or do you want us to come to you?" And the guy just said, oh, yeah, right, we're not bringing him to you. Yeah, right, if that. And it's like, what? You're not even going to take him to get some medical treatment. Mm-hmm. And then they're pausing, and it takes, what, I think they said maybe 24 minutes, minutes yeah. you know, for treatment gets someone to come. Yeah. And it's like now he's sitting here, and, and how much damage was done that could have been prevented if they maybe could have uh, administered some type of medical treatment, something. And so when you have even that being seen and shared, um, and that may even go back to even them being African-Americans in the community that are in, show up, you know, and so it's just, it's a lot that's there. And so um, when you have situations like that, it does make it hard to say, well, I'm going to call the police and now I got to wait and see how long it takes. And again, media, you know, you watch uh, straight out of Compton, you watch, Minister Society and some of these movies that we grew up watching, and they're saying the police didn't show up, and and, and it's a, it's 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 something that commonly happens. And when you talk to people you know in other bigger cities, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think they take in consideration that you know this city is going to take forty five minutes just to drive to get there <laughs> with traffic, and so yeah, they never showed up. It's like Evansville, fifteen minutes. You know, I can <laughs> I can get anywhere at Evansville fifteen minutes. What are you talking about? So when you have that in your mind, you're like, well, they didn't show up and it's taking 30, 40, 50 minutes. Yeah. But if it's shots fired, if it's the right thing, oh, they're Johnny on the spot. Like we have a concert. They're flooded the whole street. And so that becomes a conversation. Mm-hmm. So then you, you, you get to a place or you can get to a place where you just say, we don't really need the police coming around because they just mess with us anyway. Yeah. So what a uh, – and, and just a, an interesting thing – especially about like, you know, media, just as you had mentioned, uh, 
I was I read the uh, the autobiography of Nikola Tesla, and he specifically talks about how you know humans are basically automatons, and this is you know at the you know turn of the 19th century, you know, right when he was doing most of his work. And, you know, he's like, what what we consume, because, you know, we are a computer and our brain is a processor. So what we consume with our eyes and our ears and what we hear from other people, whether whether it may be true, whether it may be not true, whether they'd be biased tilted in there, then, then yeah, I mean, that's going to whatever software we have in our head uh, for certain situations, whether they be with anything. So it's just like, well, when you learn a lesson, it's like not to slam your hand in a car door or, or, you know, speaking with the police or uh, anything like that, then yeah, you're, you're, you're gonna be like, Oh yeah, somebody else did this. It's like, I knew I was right. So mm-hmm. there's, and there's, there's really no reason to update your software when you're not seeing uh, additional changes mm-hmm. going, going on for that. So uh, when, when, when he had meant, when Jeremy mentioned, uh, so what, what's kind of the protocol when like you get a case number or whatever from a, from officer at a, What's 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 that process look like on the police end uh, from when somebody calls nine one one? What's what's kind of the the you know the the whole process of, of what goes on there? Yeah, sure. So I mean, we do have officers stationed throughout or assigned to different areas throughout the city, so we do have that coverage. Of course, if something big happens, everybody's going to be kind of tilted towards that, and we try and keep a few officers available to handle the other things that may come in. But, you know, dispatch is getting all the primary initial information and assigning a priority to the, the run. So if we get something, medical emergency, a shot's fired, it's a priority one, we're going to respond, lights and sirens, and then it goes down to, you know, priority four would be just a report. So um, kind of have to triage them as you go along. So if you get tied up on a, a run that maybe have two cars on for a while, some of those priority four runs can sit for a little bit, uh, which one thing that COVID really added was uh, handling things by phone. Uh, so officers and uh, records personnel do handle some uh, runs by phone uh, a lot more than we ever used to. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, again, it just comes back to like our manpower and do we have enough officers to be able to go out and handle that? And, uh, you know, if you're making an arrest, it takes you off the road for a while because you have to go out to the jail, you have to do paperwork. Um, so it's really, you know, it comes down to, and I was talking recently uh, with someone about this, just having like a customer service mindset almost where, um, you know, I waited tables for a while for my job after I uh, graduated college. And, um, you know, you have your customers and I can just bring them their food or I can really engage with them, try and build a rapport, which is going to hopefully get me a better tip and, you know, increase my sales. Uh, obviously, law enforcement, we're not getting tips. We're not trying to make money. But at the same time, that customer service mindset, I really think it can have an impact on making our jobs a lot easier. And that all kind of comes back to this uh, a concept that uh, researchers have really been looking into for the, about the past uh, 10, 12 years um, called procedural justice, which uh, really just hits on the way that police can go about increasing you know, their ability to be trusted in the community. And uh, even uh, when President Obama was uh, in office in 2015, uh, he had a commission on law enforcement, had a lot of uh, top minds in, in, in 
policing, prosecutors, uh, executives from larger departments, and uh, professors, lawyers look at where what's the future of policing, and kind of the number one pillar they came up with was this procedural justice, and you know it's about giving you know treating people fairly, giving them a voice, being transparent, and uh, making impartial decisions, which I, I truly believe our good officers are are doing right now, even if they don't know that they're doing it, but. Those are the things that even before knowing what what procedural justice was and looking back, you know, I feel like I had a lot of uh, good encounters with people. I mean, I, I dropped plenty of people off at jail that said thank you when I left, and you know, I was leaving them in jail. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> well, thanks like for the ride. <laughs> yeah, I feel well. I at least feel like I had a you know, they at least understood why I was doing what I was doing, yeah. and and they respected it, and, and they knew, you know, to some extent that they had done something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I explained things to them and, and took that time to just converse with them. Mm-hmm. And I think good officers already do that, but we really needed to be training that and really making mm-hmm. sure they understand what it is and why it works. Because, um, in fact, Jeremy called me several months ago about an incident that he witnessed uh, sitting outside I don't know if you, you kind of started it, so you want to just, like, talk about what you saw, and then I can kind of... Yeah, with this situation, uh, me and a friend were on a um, on the porch, and there was a gentleman that was walking up the street on 8th Street, and um, we just... He was just eating some chicken. And then you see these this police car pull up. Uh, they say something, and he continues to walk, and then the police pull in abruptly, kind of stop, get out, and then they begin to have a conversation with him. In the midst of this conversation, you, I mean, again, you're just far back. You can't hear anything. Mm-hmm. You look up, next thing you know, he's knocking his food out of his hand. What? And, and then they're talking to him, and, and they're looking like they're going to put him in handcuffs. So I, I walk up just to kind of watch. And, and um, after watching, they let the guy go, and everybody appeared to be fine. But then the police officer was just staring at me. Like I wasn't supposed to be there, and I'm just standing far back, and I'm just looking like, well, I don't, I haven't done anything. I'm just going to stand here, and then that's when I finally got my phone out. He he kind of made a gesture. So I got my phone out. I uh, text Peter here, and I, I just asked, uh, you know, some questions just to get some clarity, and that's kind of where the situation was at that point. You can pick yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. So for me, you know, Jeremy calls, explains that situation to me. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't sound like something the police should do. Just Smacking people's food out of their hands, you know. <laughs> Man, that uh, sucks. <laughs> yeah. So I thankfully we have body cameras, which have, in my opinion, are a great thing for law enforcement, and I welcome them. Um, I, I knew I was doing the job the right way, and uh, you know I think they have helped us far more than they've revealed us doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I I you know, check the time when this occurred and, and the location. It was found the officer's body camera, and I found the dispatch uh, information. Uh, we call it a run card. where They just put all the times and the notes from the caller. So basically someone called 911 and said, there's a guy standing in the middle of the road blocking traffic by the gas station. So uh, that's a legit reason. We should, you know, it, my perception of how to handle that would be just like, hey, we're, you know, there's something wrong. Why are you staying in the road? Okay, don't do that and go about your, your day. And that ends the run, um, which uh, so the officers arrive on scene. They make contact with the guy. He's holding his food and they ask him why he was staying in the road. And he just said he wasn't, which, you know, 
know, for this particular law, it's a misdemeanor. If the police didn't see him do it, we're not going to make an arrest. Um, but they just want to ID who, who they talk to so they can document it and say, okay, if we have other problems, we, we know who we encountered. Well, as soon as they asked for the guy's ID, he started to, like, turn and, like, almost like he was going to either run or fight. His arm kind of pulled back, and he says, don't touch me, and I'm not telling you who I am. So, I mean, immediately the officer smacked the food out of his hand and, and kind of started to detain him and then got his ID. And the officer who got his ID said, I just, didn't I just talk to you last week? And he's like, oh, yeah. So why, are you being rude? why are you being like that to me? He's like, I just don't like the police, man. I'm sorry. So, the, you know, there, there was just this uh, encounter. The police were reacting to a potentially aggressive person who was either going to fight or flee and kind of had appropriate response. So I don't think they did anything wrong. They you know, identified the guy and told him don't stand in the street and sent him on his way. And I think the customer service aspect is where they kind of fell a little short here is, um, you know, Jeremy even said, they kind of said, oh, everything's good. And, you know, have a blessed day, I think is what Jeremy said, <laughs> said they said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, that would be easier with a little context of what we just witnessed. But uh, even on the body camera, do you see a woman pull up in a van who saw what happened? Oh, and then yeah, she yeah. pulls off. Uh, there were people across the street from Jeremy, a few people on the porch across the street that they kind of talked after the police left. So, um Again, not to say the officers, as far as the policing aspect of that encounter, did anything wrong, but there was just a real opportunity to just talk to one person that was asking about what was going on and just explain, this is what we got called to, this is what we did, I dealt with this guy last week, he, you know, we're, we're cool, mm-hmm. and we just cut him loose and asked him not to stand in the road anymore for his safety and also just to keep allow cars to go where they want to go. Mm-hmm. You know, So there's just that opportunity to really – have that customer service mindset and uh now you got 10 people that saw this and they're going to tell two people a piece so then it it just kind of multiplies this perceived negative incident when really it was nobody did anything wrong and well there's an absence of information i think the real crime there was they knocked the gas station chicken (laughs) out of that poor man's hands there's a few quality places around town (laughs) you get some good you get some good you know, places there's that marathon downtown, so yeah. like, they're getting it dialed in. So, yeah. uh, I don't know if he could have bought any more chicken. I think he was just kind of out of it. I don't even want to eat that chicken anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Peter, you mentioned uh, uh, manpower issues, so uh, mm-hmm. obviously, it's not super sexy to be a police officer right now. Um, you know, and I, I think it was probably at the height of it during the, the George Floyd thing, but in terms of recruiting and things like that. So what what are the things that are currently go- going on in terms of challenges with recruiting, uh, potential opportunities, uh, things of that nature for for uh, for hiring for departments? Right, it's it's challenging for sure. Um, you know, there's the perception of, of difficulty and risk, and um, there are other jobs that pay as well, and you don't have the risk of getting shot or injured or getting sued and hung out to dry by the administration. Because, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, even with some of these national stories, the officers did not do anything wrong, or in some of them, mm-hmm. and yet they you know, lose their jobs, they get sued, and uh, kind of feel left hung out. So uh, there's that entire thing. And, and I think in the past, we've always had enough applicants, so each department was just trying to get the best applicants. Mm-hmm. Now we're not getting enough applicants, so we have to find people who – haven't considered being police officers and convinced them that this is a good job. 
so that, that can be challenging, uh, especially with Evansville Police Department. You look at uh, the state police just got a huge raise. Counties. Vanderburg County did. Yeah, they also. got a big uh, raise scaled in over the next three years. And uh, we're hoping that the next mayor will do the same for Evansville to help help us out. Uh, but there's the element of really law enforcement has to be a calling. Uh, I mean, you can't really get into it for the money. I I believe I I I don't think uh, if you don't love the job that the money will make a difference. So, but I do think that we, we need to be competitive with other agencies and try and and figure out some things along those lines. But um, you know. Those are kind of some of the challenges. Uh, there's also just the generational differences, uh, especially um, in the past. You know, the reason to work at Evansville is you get to work on cases and do police work that you don't get to do in other jurisdictions. I mean, uh, and, and not to, you know, I, I work with people from all kinds of agencies in this area, but other people may perceive uh, a job in a county somewhere a little bit better. You still get to be a police officer paid about the same and there's not as much risk that comes along with working in Evansville. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're seizing guns and we have shots fired and murders now. Um, so I think that's not that a great thing to have, but <laughs> <laughs> no. And, and but, but, but it would be, I, I would, I would see how it could be attractive to help solve those crimes and give justice to people whose, you know, families were victims and things yeah, like that. Absolutely. I mean, as the lead detective standing there when they're getting ready to read a verdict there, it is a very unique, situation and it, uh, it, it it it's rewarding to you know those I think about the relationships I've had with like the victims families and those are one of one of the things I really cherish about the working on those cases is getting to know those families and, and making an impact on them um, you know even when they read the verdict and it's guilty, it doesn't fix, you know, there's still that sense, like there's a hole there where it, it didn't really fix what happened, but, you know, seeing the, the family really appreciate what happened is, is huge. So um, I think getting that message out a little bit more would be helpful. Um, but then you just, you have to do it without lowering your standards though too. And if you look at Memphis PD, uh, set, I, you know, saw some articles from like 2017, 2018, where they lowered a lot of their standards. Um, at some point they required a college degree, which is not a requirement in Indiana. Uh, uh, you know, the Evansville Police Department, we could in theory make that a requirement, but it would eliminate a lot of candidates. Uh, Memphis had that as a requirement, dropped it. But they also lowered a lot of their um, requirements and the standards for getting through the academy. So in, in Indiana, if you fail a test, um, you can, if you fail three tests, you can't be a police officer. Uh, if you fail a second test, you get kicked out of that academy class, and then you have to basically go through some hoops to get back into another academy class. Um, whereas, you know, Memphis had uh, their instructors were saying, basically had people that were not meeting the standard and tried to fail them, but they were basically told by the administration, we need these people. I mean, they're trying to get hundreds of people through and hired, and lowered their standard, and, and some of these people around that time were uh, the officers that were involved in the Tyree Nichols case. That was around the, the time some of them got hired. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, they had people on their they, – it was their Scorpion unit, which was their aggressive mm-hmm. crime unit. That uh, You know, I think it was about 30 to 40 officers mm-hmm. on that. 
they had officers with only two years of experience and nobody with more than six, which, I mean, that is that not a lot of experience. Yeah, you, you ain't had time to walk and see a bunch of crazy stuff yet right. to, to handle those situations. And, and it's probably a little better in Memphis. I mean, Memphis sees more than we do, being right. a little bit larger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a year of experience there is probably worth more than a year here mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. a lot more than somewhere more uh, rural. But but to put those brand new officers is in that situation is is a disservice too to them and mm-hmm. obviously we kind of see that. But I read one story. There was a, a recruit that basically sexually harassed is uh, a female instructor at the academy and didn't get kicked out and then later got fired for sexually harassing somebody else. No, it was <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it was an officer involved shooting, but he had turned his camera off at one point before that. But they somehow figured out the shooting was justifiable, but he had other violations. Mm, so yeah. it's like you know, just forcing someone through the academy if they're already making violations at that level. Yeah, why are you going to give them a badge and a gun? You know, past behavior is an indicator of future behavior. So. Um, Exactly. I mean, even the firearm standard, that's people that didn't pass the firearm standard that they were getting ready to dismiss from the academy and someone higher up basically said, oh, they can go through remedial training and we're going to push them through. So I think that's the challenge. We cannot just hire people at any cost. It has to be the right people. Mm-hmm. We have to make sure we still have our standards. Yeah. And, and I think, too, just from a from a community perspective, I, I think it's important that the – Law enforcement represents a good uh, the de- the demographics of what the city is. Uh, so I think you know I think that's important for you know people to be able to see people from different communities being involved. Be like, oh hey, you know he's from my community, cool stuff like that. Uh, so what's the uh, something? Uh, and I've, I've talked with several former uh, African American officers in town uh, and. Just here at multiple different functions and stuff, and they said the number one response I got back was, you know, I love the job, but the job didn't love me, and get called Uncle Tom and all sorts of stuff. Uh, so yeah, I'm, that makes it challenging to to get that demographic poll. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got any insights on that, Jeremy? Yeah, the whole time I was just thinking that when when you guys were talking, especially when you brought that up, um, I know of. Uh, a friend of ours who decided he wanted to go out and, and uh, do a ride along because he was considering being a police officer. And, and after the first night with some of the treatment from people from his own community, he was regretting it. Like, I don't even know if I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I was at the Dust Bowl this year and a guy we play basketball with, he comes up to me, we're talking, having a good time. And, you know, I was like, man, you know, I. <laughs> I don't know what everybody's gonna think when you walk away. You know, <laughs> I mean, we had to, we just had that joke, and um, of course, people that know you play basketball are probably like, okay, those two basketball players. But people that don't, because there's a lot of people in the community that I just don't know anymore, mm-hmm. and you know, just feel like I hope I don't know what they're gonna think about me. And then you, I go to officiate, and some of the comments that you're that are made at you because it's like, man, you know, how uh, ignorant of a statement. Because um, I think. There's, again, it's that generational piece where um, the older generation understands we have to get people from our community that join the police force if we're going to see change within our community because at least then we have people from our community that are on the force and we're less inclined to be offended by them coming into our community because they're one of us. And then the younger generation is just like, yeah, right. You know, you, 
like you said, your Uncle Tom, which I don't even know why that just doesn't even add up. You know, just stuff they're just saying. Um, and, and then all the other rude comments that they make towards them and, and, and um, threats and things of that nature. Um, so they don't they don't really see. As a matter of fact, I had a friend. He was uh, he was uh, Nashville. He wanted to become a police officer, and his father pulled him to the side and was like, "You sure you want to do that?" And he was like, "Well, yeah." He was like, "You do realize that means you're going to probably have to arrest some of your friends that you used to sell drugs with. You know, you made it out, but now if you get back in, what does that look like when you're policing your friends?" And so he had to take a step back because those relationships meant something to him, and he didn't want to, <laughs> you know, be the one hauling him off to jail because he knows exactly what's going on. Yeah. Let alone what would these guys think about me and, and you know all that. So there's a lot that plays into it, but that doesn't mean um, that you you turn away from it. I think Peter said it best. It's a call. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even me in ministry, it's a call. It's not something I just woke up like, ah, yeah, they want to preach the gospel. No, it wasn't <laughs> even that. You know, it was, it was a call and it was one of those things you couldn't get away from and God began to open doors, and, and before you know it, you're, you're doing all these things, and it's something that somebody that's not been called will never understand. And it's the same thing I believe with the job. If anybody's been called to anything, guys in the NBA, whatever you're doing, there's got to be a love and a passion for it. And if, even I think Michael Jordan having the um, love of the game clause said a lot. Mm-hmm. He loved the game so much that I don't care where I'm at. I, I want to be able to pull up. I'll go to a park. I love the game so much I want to be able to get out shoot around and play. And he's going to go bet on it, too. <laughs> All those different things, you know. So, you know, you, if, if you don't have that type of love, if you don't have that type of appreciation, then you don't um, value what you do and you don't uh, aim to be the best at it at, at all costs. Mm-hmm. Um, even if that means I have to go in here and police some people that um, I'm, I'm cool with. Yeah. Well, you know. I love the job. I love justice. I want to see what's right. I got to take you down. And and I think people could respect that because you can have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, like Peter said, even if the guy took the time to have a conversation, well, he doesn't know who I, he doesn't know who I am. He has no idea I'm a pastor and I have influence that I have. I mean, I don't talk about it. So were, were you refereeing if, that game at the Dust Bowl? Well, yeah, I ended oh, okay. up refereeing well, you're the basketball that police. Don't wonder you got mad. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but you know, even with with the time that I called him, just taking the time and saying, okay, you know, you know, how you doing? What's your name? My name is so and so. That means a lot um, when people introduce themselves to you and say, you know, whatever they say, and they say, have a nice day. Like that, that makes you look like, huh? Versus, oh my gosh, just five police cars at the gas station. I guess I'm gonna go to the next one. You yeah. know, that's kind of yeah. <laughs> so what happens. Like, I don't want no gas if I can make it around the corner. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in there, but I don't want any parts of it. And, and so, uh, but if you have those relationships, then it's one of those things. Hey, how you doing? And and uh, because um, even the police at the schools, um, we had the officers who were um, you know tasked with being at Glenwood. And so going to a basketball game at Bossy and seeing them at the door, it was less pressure because he was able to say hi to everybody and shake their hand, and he knew what was going on with them, so it was a conversation. Uh, so you were less inclined to have your um, your wall up because, oh, I know so-and-so, and that was cool. You, th- you think the school resource officers in school are nah, I don't good? like it, though. You don't like it? Mm-hmm. Really? Well, 
there's a level of building cases too. Yep, that's fair. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and so because I mean, if you if you really look at it, if you really consider how much policing is going on at certain locations, is not at others. Yeah, you know, that's just a reality. And and there is a level of stuff happening, mm-hmm. but um, you know, a police officer at uh, you know a certain school is going to be totally different than he would be at, let's say, a Glenwood where there's a lot of activity there and a lot of um, stuff going on. And so, um, you know, it it was shared that, uh, you know, we're we're able to get to know some of these kids and their behaviors and what they have going on so that as they get older, we already have a beat on what they're doing. And even the language that they use on some of the write-ups, it's like, Wait a minute, that wasn't a battery. I mean, you know, like verbal assault. Like, yeah, like no <laughs> he man. just said, "Shut up!" Real angrily to a kid, and some of the language like, "Man, you're getting a whole record here." Yeah, you know, so, so getting them, getting them pre preset for the system. They're preconditioned. Yeah, interesting. Oh yeah. Uh, so uh, just kind of go back on to uh, you know training, Peter was. Uh, so what what's the current training standards kind of on an Indiana level? Um, cause I've, I've, I've done some research and it, it looks like, you know, European police officers, which, you know, they've got obviously way different challenges and rules and, you know, uh, on a national level, but it does seem like they get a significant more amount of training. So what, just what on a local level, how much training do you get as a police officer initially, you know, are there in-service training, you know, how often does that stuff happen? Yeah. So the state requirement is 24 hours a year. Um, there are, you have to have, I think it's two hours in defensive tactics, two hours in driving, two hours in firearms. And then the rest is um, you have to hit on topics. Uh, they call it special persons. So that can be fulfilled in several different ways, whether it's learning about uh, people that have autism or, you know, dementia or, all kind. There's usually a rotation where they try and you know bring in speakers from uh, and instructors from different areas, whether it's Southwestern or um, you know other organizations that have a lot of expertise in dealing with those people and really sharing with us because we really are a catch-all to some extent. And mm-hmm. uh, anybody in crisis, it could be because they're an alcoholic, it could be because they have a mental illness. So uh, we have to be able to sort of recognize those things. So. Um, you know, the current, uh, way that we go about that is a lot of our training is, um, uh, condensed into about a two day, uh, in service. So everybody just signs up, uh, and goes to two days of training. We're trying to knock out a bunch of our hours and then the rest we fill in throughout the year, whether it's driving or shooting, uh, we have to qualify a few times a year. Um, but you know, for something that like defensive tactics, um, you know, just doing that once a year for two hours just isn't good enough. I mean, we really, we really need to be more consistently training that, even if it's once a week for 20 minutes. You know, if we if we just get 20 minutes uh, to just go over a couple of things and, and and just be really proficient at you know a handful of different tactics. Uh, but but a lot of it really just that that disservice, and you kind of really see it in the Tyree Nichols case is just handling the stress. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I do think you know some of the defensive ta- tactics training I the best training I did was they really just wore us down for a whole week and then we had a really intense fight and they really pushed you to your limit and it 
you know, physically you're broken down. You're not going to beat an instructor who knows way more than you how to fight, <laughs> even under the best conditions. Um, but it's really a mental exercise of just not giving up and, and being able to continue to work under that stress. And I think what you really see in Tyree Nichols case and is officers that are under stress, like we call it like being in the black, you know, they're at just the highest level and their, their brain, their cognitive function just isn't there like it should be because they're just focused on, you know, perceived survival, even though I would say they didn't, weren't really at risk from anything that, that of the facts that we have currently with the case. Um, but they, they, they worked them up to this like level where they're, they're not even really thinking they're just reacting and, uh, you can really see they're not trying to take this Tyree into custody. They're just beating him and yeah. tasing him and pepper spraying him. And, uh, you know, it became this whole really a punishment, you know, of, mm-hmm. hey, you ran from us, so, you know, we're going to make you pay. And you even saw that the one officer uh, the, in the first video was said something like, oh, I hope they stomp him when they get him. And, yep. you know, the other outrageous thing, too, with that was he was sitting there putting water on his eyes because he pepper sprayed himself. And, and then he, you know, Tyree's got to wait 20 minutes to even get any medical attention. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've been pepper sprayed before. It doesn't feel good, but it's, you can work through it. So, you know, that, that training, I think is the biggest thing that, that the police need is training under stress and, and just getting to a level where you're comfortable with that. Um, I've done a, a decent amount of, uh, simunitions training. I, I was able to go to an active shooter instructor school several years back and it trains you how to teach officers the response to active shooters, which a lot of those, we just are setting up scenarios. We're using simunitions, which I remember going through the academy, and, and we wear these masks, almost like paintball masks, and they got goggles, and you'd be breathing so hard because you're so nervous. This is your first time, and they'd all fog up, and you couldn't <laughs> see anything. So you're, like, trying to wipe off your eyes, but then as you get used to it, then, you know, as an instructor, like I do it all the time. I know what to expect. I know how to handle it. I know how to go through it. You know, your goggles don't fog up as much. So sort of the same thing when you, if you ever hear audio of a fighter pilot, you know, they're, they're going so fast and they sound completely calm uh, because they've, they've trained, they've been exposed to that stress so much. It's, it's become a normal for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's really what, what the training needs to be at for law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, I also just had a general question. Um, so what what kind of influence does the so, uh, just going back to the case uh, and it, and I I do believe that officer I think he deployed the taser at the initial traffic stop uh, I believe he was fired also uh, just for being in, involved in the initial stuff too um, which is good you don't need you just we do not need irresponsible police officers so it, it was good to see a lot of that action taken but. Uh, Pretty soon after the case, it looks like the Department of Justice stepped in uh, on a federal level. Uh, so how, how does that happen? Like, does the Department of Justice have any influence on the department here? Or is everything kind of ran on its own merits in terms of the police department here? And then, you know, uh, federal manpower can step in? Or how, how is that decided when, when that happens? Yeah, that's, I mean, the, the, f- the federal government's involvement is up to the, the, the federal government. They can step in if they, if they feel it's needed and they can come in and basically audit everything that you do, all your policies, whether written or your de facto policies, which would be just the way you do things, mm-hmm. even if it's not written. Um, I mean, that's going to be up to them that, to choose when they want to step in and 
and they can receive complaints and decide uh, <coughs> how to respond to those. Um, and I think there was a call for them to get more involved in, while there have been some civil rights charges, I think those just came out last month. Uh, uh, September 12th. Yeah. So, so they, yeah, two those, weeks ago. you know, that's separate than them coming in. I, I remember several years back, Albuquerque PD, they end up with a consent decree where basically the federal government comes over and kind of takes over the department and says, okay, here's how you will be doing things mm -hmm. because of all these problems that we're having. They had, had quite a few officer involved shootings. And um, so, you know, the involvement is kind of up to the, Department of Justice and, and how does it serve the federal government. But, you know, federal charges can come in at, you know, any at any time. And, and there can also be the, uh, you know, the lawsuits as well that, that can get filed in federal court as well. Uh, so one more thing. Uh, so in in a situation like that, let's say it's not as something as egregious as a Tyree Nichols, George Floyd, or anything like that. Let's say it's something to where you know an individual from the community happens to feel you know like they've been wronged by the police, they were you know, targeted or something like that. So if a complaint is filed with the police department, what does that process look like, uh, kind of behind the curtain? On if it's like a local complaint, yeah. Right. So we have our internal affairs. Uh, we have an internal affairs investigator who fields a lot of the complaints. Uh, sometimes the complaints will come in through dispatch and a supervisor would speak to them. And, you know, if it's just an officer being rude, that can be ha handled at a supervisory level. And they'll interview the body cam, talk to the officer, tell them, hey, don't be rude or whatever it may be. You know, that'd be a you know, very minor level. But the more serious complaints go through our internal affairs they, um, you know, conduct their own investigations, basically, uh, into the way that, you know, the police are, you know, did the officer commit a crime? Did the officer just violate policy? Um, you know, so we have a lot of uh, different, you know, all our uses of force are reviewed. A supervisor does an investigation if an officer uses force or if we have a pursuit. Get a little closer to the mic. Um, Any time that we're doing those higher risk activities, uh, there's going to be an investigation by a supervisor, and did we follow policy? Mm -hmm. uh, okay, yeah, just changing gear. Just got a couple more things to discuss here. Uh, so, just I'm I'm curious. It it seems like the the BLM movement has just fallen off the face of the earth. It seems like they were around everywhere. So, like everybody took down their BLM decorations, put up their Ukraine decorations, and like it's a like it's holiday season. Uh, but what it what was interesting, uh, just from you know, growing up and seeing you know, movements like that, uh, there seem there seems to be a pattern. Maybe you know I'm just wrong trying to make something out of nothing. But I remember seeing it kind of similar in the uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement uh, back 2007 2008. Uh, you know, I think the Tea Party movement and what. What appears to happen is, you know, there's a absolute grass round, gra grassroots movement that gets together, and people are like, "Yeah, this is this isn't right." Whatever, it, whatever it could be, whether it's, you know, financial corruption, whether it be, you know, uh, something involved in law enforcement, uh, but and then as the movement gets established and people start to get, uh, you know, words and start speaking together really seems like corporate dollars start coming in, and they're like, hey, we want to support this too, so they can get a write-off and cool. 
But then everything after that just seems to lose its traction. Uh, so why, what, and I think people who are in charge of the BLM movement are getting, you know, arrested for fraud and stuff now, buying mansions, which if you do it legally, you know, whatever, but, uh, but, and and that's not even specific to this case. So, Mm -hmm. so is that what, yeah, any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, there was a lot of malpractice with them, but even when you look at the uh, original leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, their original um, motives were, it had nothing to do with that. Um, you know, they, um, <clears throat> when, when you really read about them and study their background, some of the things they were faced with, it makes sense why they came together, how closely related they all were with their experiences and their um the lifestyle as well. And I think they, it, it just took off and it, it, they never saw it being that big. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then when it exploded, um, everybody came together, everybody was there. And before you knew it, you had like all these different chapters, but you had no real bylaws. You had no real structure and everybody was claiming black lives matter. And everybody was setting up everywhere. And meanwhile, um, those main, I think it was three of them, maybe four at the most, I want to say three, um, you know, they were able to secure a lot of money and spending it in ways they weren't supposed to, and then they get in trouble, and people pull up in their houses recording, like, hey, you know. So it just all fizzled down. Yeah. Um, but it, it wasn't – when you think about movements like the Black Panther Party where you had individuals who were really educated and conscious, mm-hmm. um, Huey P. Newton was should be Dr. Huey P. Newton because he had his doctorate, Nobody talks about that. I mean, he was just very intelligent. And, and so you you with those individuals, they knew the law. They understood the law. They had a purpose. They set up after-school programs, and, and they're all uh, from the same foundation of the Black Panther Party in terms of feeding kids breakfast and then giving them medical treatment and, and all different things they did. And it's like, wow, um, look at what they were able to do in the time frame they did it. Uh, but they were professionals. Um, and, and so – I think some of these younger, well, some of the the people that were in the Black Lives Matter, I'll just speak specifically of them. They were educated, they were professionals, but um, I feel as though it evolved into something that they really couldn't handle. And, um, you know, there has to be a level of God fear in anything you're doing. I I just, you know, that just goes without saying. Uh, Because I remember even reading some of the practices that they had um, trying to um, conjure up some spirits uh, from the dead and things. And it's like, wow, what in the world are you, <laughs> what does this have to do with black lives matter? You know, and it was some, like some strange things that they were involved in. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I think whenever. Yeah. That's when you start losing people when you're trying to summon a demon or something. So. Yeah. You have to be careful. Um, and so a lot of that just played out and it just went left and it was, The younger generation is so far removed from civil rights and what all that really entailed that it's almost like the sense of entitlement right. versus we had to fight for this. Um, you know, when you when you go back to civil rights and slavery, and I I couldn't be in here right now doing this interview because it's a library, mm-hmm. and so 
my father growing up around that time and educating me and making me sit down and read books and, and all this different stuff. And then you finally get to the point, you're like, why am I doing this? Like, you know, like, well, let me tell you. I'm happy you finally asked. First yeah. of all, because I said so. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And so when he begins to give you the history and you go talk to your grandmother and you're like, oh, I thought you were a housekeeper because it was something respectable to do, but you take care of this family because <laughs> That's what you've been doing since before I was born. And, and so they're like your children and you're like, you know, the person that came in as a slave. <laughs> yep. And so you don't know that until you're old enough to really have that conversation. So when you're brought up around that, there's a certain level of appreciation that you have for being able to go to a library and get a book and then study and learning more and seeing what these individuals did before you as to why it is you're faced with some of the challenges that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now, that generation, we've kind of grown up and um, things were very comfortable. And, and I, I don't read a book, I just get on Kindle. So now you don't even value books and you listen to audio. Yeah. And, and so like you're I losing. A, I watch an eight-second TikTok clip about civil rights. It's like, oh, okay. And yeah, <laughs> and they just mimic it and they just spit it back out. And, yeah. and they don't even verify think they know it. Or? No. And before you know it, they self-proclaimed activists and they're doing all this stuff and, um, you know, they're able to get traction because maybe they're calling the news. I mean, you can call the news now and you set up to have some. I mean, I've never done it, but I know people that do yeah. or have. It's like you just called them and told them to show up. It's like I'm on speed dial. You know, but they, they wanted the platform for whatever. And so, right. you, you know. I, I think part of that, too, is just the desire, the almost the allure of social media and just mm-hmm. wanting a platform and wanting to be famous. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think a lot of that can, can reflect directly back on that, too. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, I want to go viral, and then I'll get some more followers. Well, to me, it's all dopamine-based in your head about, oh, this this person like my this, this person like my that, and mm-hmm. got me a thumbs up. And Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a real thing. So Yeah, when you're talking about it being bigger than just they could handle, too, that – really makes me think about uh, back at the Tyree Nichols, it, it, the leadership is really, there's a big failure there. I think that was probably the number one issue that I, I saw was, you know, where's, where are the supervisors at in this situation? Anytime we have a use of force, we're calling a supervisor. Um, I think I read one supervisor was on scene and ended up, they were getting ready to fire him, but he just retired. And then they, we're going to decertify him. So he couldn't be a police officer somewhere else. And then something happened with the paperwork and then they had to refile it because someone called him out on it. So, um, you know, you really look at, you know, the leadership and, and not only that specific incident, but, you know, just on the, their day-to-day operations, there were other complaints about the officers using excessive force before this that were basically swept under the rug. And, and, and I do believe that if you work, do enough work, you're going to make mistakes, but mm-hmm. You know, if you're getting into the territory of use of force mistakes, those really need to be addressed by your leadership. Yeah. And I, th- I think I just regularly see there's just a, you know, a general just lack of uh, accountability. So it's just like, you know, hey, if you're at the top of a department or whatever and something happens under your watch, it's like, you're responsible. You weren't there when, you know, Tyree Nichols was getting beat. You know, and then died three days later. But you know, you're still at the top of the food chain, and mm-hmm. you know, I, uh, and you know, I guess that's some of the politics of it too. Uh, mm-hmm. Just you know, but I, I think there's a massive lack of accountability for for a lot of leaders for for not not putting out information or mm-hmm. only putting out you know through omission. Be like, well, we'll put out some of this. 
uh, you know, because it won't look as bad. But, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's a lot of people, and not even not even the African-American community, just with the entire community, and that's why they're such – that's why congressional approval ratings, like, I think lower than 18% now because everybody's getting lied to all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, hey, just take accountability. It's like, hey, if you screwed up, be like, hey – Here's how I screwed up. Here's how we can fix it. Mm-hmm. So I just I just don't see much of that uh, on on really any level, you know, from from a lot of places. It'd be a breath of fresh air. Well, it would be. Yeah, and and, and I, mean, I think it's uncomfortable to do though. I mean, I don't. You know, my kids, I get them in trouble not because I dislike them, but it's because I love them and I want them to know how to do the right thing. And if I let them do the wrong thing and don't correct them, they'll keep doing the wrong thing. Well, yeah. it's kind of the same way for the officers that work for me. Or that I have an opportunity to have an influence on. If they do something wrong, I want to. It's it's not comfortable to sit there and tell somebody, "Hey, I reviewed your body camera on this case, and you did this, 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 and this wrong." Um, but here's how we can fix it. This is what we should do. This is why we do it this way. And having that conversation will hopefully have an impact on them correcting the behavior. So. Not only we're not getting sued, we're not getting in a dangerous situation, we're not losing court cases because, mm-hmm. you know, it might be something as small as collecting evidence. You know, we have to collect evidence in this particular way so we can actually use it in court. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of leadership is not willing to have those difficult conversations, which is the whole point of being a leader is mm-hmm. stepping up and, and looking for those things, not just to get people in trouble, but to protect them and, mm-hmm. and but also the city as a whole because yeah. – in these lawsuits, the city is going to be paying out a ton of money. Uh, it's going to affect yeah. everybody's budget. Oh, well, yeah, it's tax dollars, too. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah, that money don't yeah. come out of thin air. So, no. uh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of wrap up with this uh, this last question here since it's, we're kind of on the, the leadership kick here. Um, so, I mean, obviously there, you know, the, the gap appears to be lessening, you know, but, you know, we still have a ways to go yet, but – uh, you know, there is a uh, the first guest we had on, uh, Dr. David Sampson. He just wrote a book uh, out in March, and one thing he specifically talks about is a trust paradox. That was kind of, you know, the big kicker of his book. Um, so, and it's basically, you know, that's, that's, that's where we're going, you know, in terms of leadership in the future is, you know, how do we develop this trust between, you know, com- communities in our cities, not even just, you know, in Indiana, but just on a national level, so, but, you know, but if you look specifically at the African-American community, uh, you know, it doesn't take long to go down the list of why there is distrust between the Tuskegee experiments, redlining of housing, the crack epidemic, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so, so how do we continue as, you know, as leaders of our communities and leaders in law enforcement, how do we start bridging that gap to continue to make progress going forward? We'll start with you, Jeremy. I think, honestly, me and Peter have grown um, in our relationship because we spend time together. You know, we, we play basketball on Saturdays, and it just started from there. And um, then when uh, I had a question, he was transparent, open and got back with me after doing research and helping me understand um, why things are done the way they are. And, you know, once I understood how things were done the way they're done and the approach, um, and because of our relationship and I could trust him, it was it's easy for me to then say, um, 
you can trust him. Mm-hmm. Imagine if several other police officers did that, and it goes from you can trust him to you can trust them. Mm-hmm. And so I think they're the, one of the main things that needs to happen. I mean, coffee with cops is a waste of time. They do it, but come <laughs> on, man. Like coffee with cops. None of the people you want to deal with are coming to have coffee. No, not at like no, seven a.m. No, it's and, like no, I got and, stuff. I got and, stuff to do. And the guys that are in there having coffee. Then they're having coffee, scraping up change to get the coffee because they're they're homeless. Yeah. You know, it's like this is a joke, but you can say you're having coffee with cops, but nobody of any yeah, importance is showing up. It's not effective. No. So good idea, I guess, for people <laughs> who like coffee. You know what I mean? But yeah. you got to like coffee. Yeah. You know, there's got to be a purpose. And then you, Lord, then you see them just, it's like their little click. Mm-hmm. Like I'm seeing the same people come to the same coffee shop having yeah. the same conversations. And just kicking it up versus establishing relationships. You know, even if, you know, even at events like the Dust Bowl, you know, they're not doing anything. They're not talking to anybody. Mm-hmm. They're in their car. They're, hey, you going to get some pizza? All right, I'm going to get pizza. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, we got a whole fight over here about to take place. Yep. <laughs> and you're over here in your car chilling. Like, you're not even trying to engage people yep. and say, hey, how you doing? You're not saying I'm going to go to a food truck and buy some kids some candy or something. You hungry? Let me buy you something. No, that's happening. So it's like you have opportunities to, to create relationship with individuals. Um, I mean, circle back to these houses where you've talked to these individuals and you've been there in crisis and, and drop off some food. Mm-hmm. Like, get to know these people. And because one thing about African-Americans, once you're in, you're in. Like, you know, we, you know, we, we ain't gonna let nothing happen. Um, I was just watching the movie uh, King Richard the other night, and it's, you know, Serena Williams and Venus Williams and the dad, and, you know, he's teaching them tennis and all this different stuff. He gets beat up by this local uh, drug dealer or whatever, and he gets to the point to where his kids are getting good in tennis. Now these same drug dealers come up like, hey, man, don't worry about it. We got you from run out. Well, a white guy comes into the community to work with Venus and Serena in, in tennis, and they pull up, and they're like, hey, man, hey, you haircut. They talk to the white guy, hey, Mr. Hey, hey you with a haircut. Like, Richard, this guy with you? He's like, yeah, man, he's cool. He's like, he's like I ain't going to let you get shot today. But they're like, okay, as long as he's cool with you, Richard. But that's how we are as a community. You know, once you're a part of who our circle, it's like, no, you're going to respect that police officer. Let me find out you just said something. Matter of fact, you tell me you done something. Like, there was a time in this community when I was younger, that's what it was like. And so if we could get back um, to some of those, like you said, grassroots of relationship development, not relationship development with the person that's running for office or you need the votes, but you you really want to get to know me. Guys working your beats in your neighborhoods. Yeah. Host a cookout. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know what's. No, you could. Community at the park on the cops. Yeah. I mean, it's bigger. Them jokers going to Disney World. Y'all have more fun in Disney World with these kids than you are here in the community. Yeah. It's, but it's 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 a money pot. Yep. And it's, it's so it's like if you could if they can get past how we can make dollars, right, and get to the point of how we can develop so, relationships. Like Looking to the next election cycle. Being, yeah. Okay, how do we get? Can we get? And and seeing stuff too. You know, it's cool to see occasionally. You know. Something pop up on social media, be like, "Hey, cop bought a kid a bike or something." Yeah, or they threw in stuff like that. But you know, uh, Joffrey Miller, uh, he's an author. He wrote a book specifically on virtue signaling, and he he breaks it down. And this this is something too, just on a political level. There's cheap virtue signaling, and there's expensive virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. Cheap virtue signaling is 
putting a Black Lives Matter sign in your yard and, <laughs> and, it, and it makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you're on a certain political team and you're wearing, you know, an Obama shirt or a Trump hat or whatever. It's just like, well, yeah, that's cheap and that's easy to do and anybody can do it. What's expensive virtue signaling is uh, volunteering in your community, making relationships and things like that. That's mm-hmm. expensive to start virtue yeah. signaling because it takes time and effort and, it, yeah. and and volunteering in your community and your churches. And Very uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, get in some uncomfortable circles. Yep. I mean, you know, you're working cases, but even if you know someone that was young that was murdered and the police come out to support the family at a vigil mm-hmm. and say, we're not here to be police at all. We're just here to support you because we know you're going through a rough path. And, you know, I, I understand it can be difficult because you have a job too. I'm, I'm not removing that, but you have days off. Yep. You know what I mean? Me and yeah, you Peter don't got to show up in a badge. Yeah, you don't, don't got to show up in a badge all the time. It's yeah. like you can just stop by and say what's up. And that's so. the sacrifice that 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 we're used to because it's sacrifices that we make right. within our community. So um, I I just think that there's there's a relational piece that if it's taken more intentional, and it's more consistent. I can see a. I believe there will be a lot of change mm-hmm. um, in the perception of the police if if they're more relational in what they did and how they approach things. I mean, shoot, tell them jokers not to cuss at people. Yeah. I won't be cussed out. You show up. What the hell you doing? Man, what you, what you mean? I'm a grown like you know what I mean? Like you're that's not de escalation. Yeah. Even like, when we listen you listen to the body cam footage and the way they were talking to him, oh, yeah. it was horrible. Yeah, yeah. it's like it's like it's like, well, oh, how would you like, be I'm, scared? I'm gonna baton the shit out of you. Just yeah. Like, it's like uh <laughs> And if his parents or he doesn't grow up in a household where they talk like that Imagine what that, what yeah, that did to him. Can, yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like that, and that comes back to leadership too. It seems like they're misusing some of their tactics because all these other stories came out. Same thing, like, dude, I just saw three people in challengers roll up on me, and they didn't even look like cops, and I thought I was getting robbed, so I ran. Um, <laughs> you know, I've I've been in details where we do jump, we call them jump outs, where but we're looking for specific people, so we know it seems like they're just jumping out on everybody, <laughs> which is like you're it, you catch them by surprise, but. At the same time, if all they're doing is, you know, hey, T, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to laugh, but it just I know <laughs> visual, like what? Yeah. So if, if you're if you're trying to get a specific person that you know has a warrant or you know you you have a reason to stop a specific person, it's an effective strategy. But you can't just jump out on everybody because then they think they're getting robbed or something, and that's <laughs> not what you're supposed to do. But you know, I think with this next election, we have a huge opportunity. Um, know to to really have a paradigm shift in in conjunction with the youth that we have at the Evansville Police Department to really just uh, and I truly believe just training officers having a foundation of that procedural justice being fair being transparent giving the community a voice and treating our officers the same way within the organization Um, you know the the Scorpion unit in Memphis they're they're policing hot spots they have you know an issue in specific areas in Memphis they were they were being aggressive uh, but there's actually a study recently shows that they uh, they did it in several cities. They trained two groups of officers. One they trained on hotspot policing and just kind of cut them loose. And then the other one they trained on hotspot policing and spent three days on procedural justice, what mm-hmm. the pillars mean, what it means to be procedurally just. The procedurally just group reduced crime by 14% and made 60% less arrests, which is mm-hmm. insane, to reduce <laughs> crime and make half of the arrests that you – were wow. previously making yeah. and it, and they did it by just what Jeremy was talking about building relationships going out and talking to people uh talking to the people involved in it and and you know the city 
uh, invested in this group violence initiative, uh, which, uh, you know, it has basically just become, you know, it, it really feels like in my exposure to it was the police are the only one, you know, was pitched as the community getting involved and people from different agencies getting involved. And, and it really has been more just the police getting involved, which people already don't want to talk to the police. So we don't have that other community side of things to really impact it. So, um, you know, I think we really, we have a formula that we can do building relationships, like you said, and, you know, in any industry, there's always an agency, there's always an organization that does better than everybody else in that, in that same field. And, and there's no reason why the Evansville Police Department can't be that organization as far as policing goes, especially in this region. Uh, we should be a leader in, in the way that we do things. And you know, I'm confident, you know, with the right leadership, the right mayor, that we can make that happen here. Well, that's cool. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank uh, you. I don't know if we'll make a difference, but you got to start somewhere. So, yeah. yeah, just more conversations like this is what, uh, not just even on a local level, I wish national politicians and stuff will be doing the same stuff a little more often. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm tired of the squawking and the screaming, man. There's yeah. nothing, nothing's getting done. So, but uh, yeah, appreciate it. Thank you guys so much thank for you. listening. Yeah, thanks.